The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We do want to um, really honor all the mothers that are here today and are so thankful for all of you, for the, all the seen and the unseen and never acknowledged ways uh, that you serve in so many ways. And so we uh, just want to express our deepest gratitude to all of you here. Uh, it's a little hard to believe that this is our last Sunday here, you know. It's, uh, in many ways in my head, it feels like we just got here. Uh, but really, almost three years have passed by already. And so this is going to be our last Sunday here. And so it's exciting, the next chapter that God has for us. It's, it's not a big move. We're just moving five minutes away from here. And yet I think, I, I think there's a sense of place that we all get accustomed to, right, where we um, kind of sit in these red chairs and, and there's something familiar about the experience of worship that we associate with place. And so um, it'll be interesting to try to, it's almost like getting a new pair of jeans and it's going to take a little while uh, for them to sort of get comfortable for us. But uh, we're also really excited about the store of opportunity God has given us to uh, rent through uh, our Savior, and so what uh, God has for us in that season. Before we get into the message, I do want to also take care of a few other kind of house cleaning things. I feel like there's been a lot of announcements already, and I'm going to kind of pile on that a little bit more, but uh, one thing is for any of you who are involved in our current cohort of journey groups, we will, we'll actually not have a meeting today as it's on the calendar. I apologize for that. But in light of Mother's Day, we're actually going to postpone it until next week. And we're going to actually do it before service. I think generally because our service is now shifting to 11.15, a lot of our meetings that we normally do Sunday afternoons, we're going to sort of shift toward the morning. And so I'll send out an email to you within a day or so to give you all the details of, of coming early uh, for that journey group facilitators meeting, okay? I also want to share a little bit about the teaching calendar ahead as well. Uh, aside from the graduation Sunday service that we're going to have in about three weeks, I will be preaching for about the next month. And then uh, in mid-June, I am going to take a couple of months off in preaching so that I can focus a bit more on some um, bigger projects related to both ICC as well as to Thrive. Um, which are very difficult for me to address in the midst of uh, the responsibilities for preaching on Sunday. One of those projects is going to be a Christian foundations class that I want to teach uh, on Sundays, most likely. And so I, it's been a real burden of mine to offer something for those who are new believers as well as young believers who may just uh, have never really been discipled into some of the uh, real pillars of the faith and so that's something that I'm really excited about and looking forward to, is it'll probably be between about four to six meetings. I don't know exactly how many yet, but if, if you belong in that group where you could say that you're a pretty uh, new or young believer, and uh, you, you maybe even feel a little awkward or embarrassed by the fact that maybe there seems to be a lot of foundational things about the faith that you've never really learned or were taught that others in the church all seem to know, would really strongly encourage you to sign up for that. And we'll kind of journey together through some of that material this summer. And so sign-ups for that will begin in the really near future. And so look out for that if uh, you are interested in that foundations class, okay? Um, we are not done with the After God's Heart series, the whole Life of David series we've been doing in the winter and the springtime. In fact, 
I'd say we're just a little more than halfway through it. Um, I was going to continue it today and sort of march it on, but um, the passage actually we're on, we just finished the whole David and Bathsheba saga, and now we're on uh, Amnon and Tamar story. And if you know your Bible well enough, uh, you kind of may understand why I didn't want to preach Amnon and Tamar as the final service here and on Mother's Day, okay? Um, so that gets into some really difficult material about uh, rape and incest and some pretty really tough things to talk through. And so we're going to hold off on that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually preach on a number of other topics uh, through June. And then come fall, when I start to resume the pulpit, we'll actually start by relaunching into the After God's Heart series, where we'll sort of march out the rest of the life of David uh, as we look at sort of the, the whole latter part of his life, okay? Um, so I want to preach a message that's going to touch more on family in light of the fact that we're talking, in light of the fact that we're celebrating Mother's Day today. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer, and then we will... I'll look at the message for this morning. Father, our hearts are um, just really, truly grateful for uh, the great blessing of providing for us this place uh, here at NPC. We're thankful for um, just this past three years of ministry and all the uh, different things that happened, whether they were planned and expected or unexpected and totally caught us by surprise. And yet, through it all, we know that you have been with us and that you are with us. And so even as we look at yet another significant transition in our church, we do so uh, with our eyes to you, depending on you and seeking you. We pray that you would always be the leader of this church, that ultimately you, Christ, as Lord over all of us, would be the one that is shepherding us and drawing us to yourself. And through your love and through your power, strengthening us and building us up, to be the community that you desire in us. And so we turn our attention to your word and pray these words would be life-giving to us, that would breathe real life in our souls and our spirits, and that through that life that we would understand more and more what it means to live in your kingdom. For we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the message is Redeeming Broken Love, and I'll try to explain a little by, a bit more as we get into the message what I mean by that as we uh, unpack it. Um, in terms of importance, I think it's often joked that Father's Day often seems almost like an afterthought compared with Mother's Day. And maybe that's just a gut feeling that you have, uh, but the data actually bears that out. <laughs> um, Mother's Day became an official U.S. holiday in 1914. Father's Day didn't get that status until 1972, okay? Um, we spend, as a nation, twice as much money on Mother's Day as we do on Father's Day. Over 80% of Americans uh, send cards to their mother on Mother's Day. For fathers, it's around two-thirds, okay? The question is, why is there such a big disparity between Mother's Day and Father's Day? I, I think it's because for many of us, uh, mothers tend to hold a very special place in our hearts. When we think of home, we often think of our mothers. Um, and that's been uh, true in my life 
as well. Some of you may have heard me share this story before, and I apologize if you've heard it before, but I, in light of Mother's Day, I just wanted to share with you how it's impacted me. Um, during the summer of my junior year, many of you know, uh, as in my junior year of high school, I went on a mission trip to Kenya with an organization called Teen Missions International. Before heading out to Kenya, however, we were required to go through this incredibly intensive two-week training program, which was called the Lord's Boot Camp in Merritt Island, Florida, which is just next to Cape Canaveral where they used to launch the space shuttles. Um, It was this utter jungle-like environment, no electricity. There were no shower facilities even. Uh, we did our laundry by hand in buckets. We slept in tents. And we would wake up at the crack of dawn every morning before the sun even came out. And we would run this ridiculously grueling obstacle course. And then you would eat breakfast. You'd get like 10 minutes to eat breakfast. And then you sit down for quiet time, all before 8 a.m. And by that time... Uh, The temperature is already in the 90s and almost 100% humidity uh, because this is summer in Florida. And so I'm sitting there after running that obstacle course, downing my breakfast as fast as I can and sitting on a log in a jungle to have quiet time. And I'm literally like dripping with sweat and my body just feels covered with grime and sand and dirt. And I'm trying to meet with the Lord, you know. And every day from morning to night, the schedule is filled with seminars and workshops teaching us everything from bricklaying, because there were a lot of construction teams, uh, basically uh, puppetry and body worship. Um, By the second week, I was convinced that I had made the biggest mistake of my life signing up for this mission trip. And I wrote a letter to my mother. And it's crazy. It, it really almost felt like a bit like a POW camp because they coached us in how, what we were allowed to say and what we were not allowed to say in these letters to home. I think it's because of the kind of letters these kids often did write to home, which would result in a lot of phone calls. And I violated every single one of those rules. And I told my mother uh, the horrors that I was enduring there. And I actually told her this. I said it in the letter. I don't think I'm going to go to Africa. I made a mistake. I just want to come home. Can you just change my plane ticket so that I could come home? Within days of getting that letter, my mother got in her car and with my brother, drove all the way down from Chicago to Florida to see me. (laughs) And... (laughs) it's hard to express to you how much that visit meant to me to see my mother show up in Florida in that jungle and hold my hand and say, it's going to be all right, Steve. I felt like a little kid again, you know? And I can honestly say that if my mother had not come, I honestly don't think I would have gotten on that plane and gone to Kenya. And I very well may have never been a missionary as a result of that. 
I mean, this is the power of a mother's love, isn't it? She gets a letter from her son, and next thing you know, she's in a car driving across the country to see her son. This is powerful, and it is beautiful. A mother's love is like that. But we also have to acknowledge that a mother's love, like truthfully all other loves in this broken world, is at times flawed and misguided. And so today I want to talk a bit about the brokenness of the love that we give to others and we experience from others in a broken world. And God's solution to that brokenness through the gift of the church, the family of God, and how God wants to bring healing in our lives through the church. And I want to do it primarily through this story that I actually preached about at the beginning of 2018 about James and John's mother approaching Jesus. But I'm going to come at it from a pretty different angle than how I preached it in January 2018. Um, The story begins in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 20 to 21, and it says this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeled down, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant me that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. I'm always amazed at how brief and to the point the Bible tends to be when describing events. And yet, in that economy of words, how much it's able to communicate to us. Even in these just few sentences, I think we get a pretty good picture of the kind of woman James and John's mother must have been. In other words, I think this is the first century Jewish version of the tiger mom, right? Or maybe we would call her the helicopter mom today, right? Now listen. I have no doubt that she had the best intentions in mind for her two boys. And that what she was doing was absolutely perceived by her as an act of love and care for her boys. Trying to secure for them the best possible future that she could for them as their mother. But what I would also argue is this. In her brokenness, her attempt to love her sons ended up actually doing more harm than good for them. In fact, you could even argue that it pitted her sons squarely against God's agenda for them. And just in case there was any doubt about the inappropriateness of her request for her sons, Jesus responds in verses 22 to 23, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. You know, up to this point, James and John are silent. We don't actually know how they feel about their mother's request. But once they speak, it becomes pretty obvious that they actually are on board with her plan. And maybe they were shy about speaking up at first for themselves because the truth is they even recognize how crass this request is, that they are given the seats of honor at the sides of Jesus. But then when Jesus says, can you drink the cup I am going to drink, 
I think they might have misunderstood Jesus' intentions when he asked this. Basically, I think what they thought was that Jesus was saying, do you guys really think that you've got what it takes to have these seats of honor? And so they're acting as if they're auditioning for a part. And they quickly reply back to Jesus, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. But then Jesus makes it clear that these seats on his left and right aren't up for grabs for whoever is just the most ambitious to ask for it. Because he goes on and he says in verse 23, Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And then to drive the point home as to how off-target they are from the heart of God. He says this in verses 25 to 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, by trying to maneuver themselves ahead of the other disciples and claiming these seats of power, Jesus was basically rebuking them and saying, you are not acting like my disciples. You're acting like the world. To be a leader in my kingdom is not to try to step over others and to get ahead of them. But it is to serve them, putting their needs ahead of even your own. What I find so interesting about the story is this. That James and John, as adults, were essentially caught in the tension and the confusion of being discipled by both Jesus and their mother. They have two disciples, Jesus and mom. And Jesus was teaching them to pursue the surrendered life of selfless servanthood. But their mother saw things from a very different lens. To her, life was about grabbing life by the horns and doing whatever you need to do to get ahead of others, to secure power and status in your life. I think for James and John's mother, her view of life is that in life there are those who are deserving and those who aren't worthy. And you better figure out pretty fast which camp you're going to be in. Are you going to be with the winners or are you going to be with the losers? And the problem is, James and John's mother had a much bigger head start than Jesus did in discipling these boys. Enlisting the 12 disciples in Mark's gospel, we find this interesting side commentary on James and John. Mark 3, verse 17. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, for to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. James and John were the only two disciples to whom Jesus gave a nickname, calling them sons of thunder. 
Mark doesn't explain what this nickname means. But in Luke's gospel, we get a hint of why Jesus called them this. In Luke 9, verse 51 to 55, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, speaking of Jesus, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Sons of thunder indeed, right? Now, we have to be careful not to overreach here. But I think it's not too hard to imagine that a woman like this raised children to become adults who would be nicknamed Sons of Thunder, okay? These two brothers are in essence telling Jesus, let's take out these losers, Jesus. Just give us the power and we will rain down hellfire on these people because they don't deserve mercy. I want to ask you this this morning. In your efforts to love the people in your life, is it possible that you may be interfering with what God wants for them? That's a difficult question for us to face. I want to illustrate this in something that happened just this Friday. On Friday, I drove down to U of I to pick up my son Luke because he had just finished his freshman year down at U of I. And driving home, we got into a pretty extended conversation about his future and what kind of career path he was going to take because he's in the school of business down there. And, uh, you know, there was this moment where he was just being, I think, a little more vulnerable and just sharing with me some of the dreams that he has uh, for what he wanted to do to leverage his business major with some kind of moonshot careers that he wanted to do. And the truth was this. As he was sharing these dreams with me, I was shooting them down because it just sounded way too risky for me. And I was quashing his dreams and I was basically telling, trying to steer him into business careers that would give him the greatest stability and the maximum salary. And as I was about half an hour into this conversation, I just, there was this moment of clarity where I was looking at myself and thinking, what am I saying to my son? And what, in essence, I was telling him was, without me realizing, was the point of life is to make as much money as you can and live a comfortable life. I, as a pastor... (laughs) was saying this to my son. But when I really began to examine my heart, I realized it was coming from a place of love. It really was. Because as a father, that's what I want for my kids. I don't want them to suffer. I want them to have a comfortable... My attitude is like, you guys all have good brains. You can do this. And so my heart is like, Get the best job you can. Make the highest salary you can. And live a good, comfortable life. But even as 
Luke and I were driving back up to Chicago from Champaign. I was wrestling with that. Is that really what the goal of life is? Is that really what God wants for Luke? Is the best, highest paying job he can get after graduation. And as I looked at my heart, I realized truthfully, maybe I'm not that different from James and John's mother as I think I am. Let me ask you this. In what ways might your love for others be contrary to God's agenda for them? Let me give you a few more examples of the way that I think this often plays out in parenting particularly. Maybe out of your love for your kids, you are constantly doing everything you can to protect them from every danger, real or imagined, that exists in this world. And in the end, what you are doing is you're raising insecure children who fear everything and trust no one. And the most worrisome part is maybe not even God. You are not teaching them a life of faith and courage. You are teaching them a life of fear. In your desire to raise kids who will succeed in life, you are always pushing them to try harder and praising or disciplining them based on their successes, whether athletic or musical or academic. And in the end, what you may be producing are anxious children who realize that love has to be earned and their worthiness is tied to their performance. And the truth is, these family sins tend to get passed down from generation to generation. And one of the things that I would say is this. For in order for us to understand why we do what we do, we often have to look back to see how it is that we were formed by the ones who shaped us. And so I would ask you a second question. In what ways were you formed by a broken love? Maybe in their efforts to try to help you succeed, your parents always criticized you or belittled you. And rather than making you try harder, the message that you took away from all of that is, I'm just stupid. I'm not good enough. And now as an adult, anytime your work is evaluated or challenged, you crumble. Because the only message that you can hear, even if somebody is trying to help you, is, I'm stupid. I'm not good enough. Some of you, I know this because I've counseled some of you, come from such broken families, such broken homes, that you're not even sure love was even involved with anything that you experienced as a child. I know some of you grew up in homes where your parents, frankly, checked out. And so in many ways, you ended up assuming the role of the adult in that home. And so you had to take care of yourself. You had to take care of your siblings. Some of you, sadly, even had to take care of your parents as a child. 
because they couldn't take care of themselves. And so robbed of that childhood, you now have assumed the role as an adult, as the dutiful adult, who tries to take care of everybody else in your life. But in that brokenness, you don't know how to acknowledge your own needs and hurts. You just stuff all of those needs and pains deep inside because you never learned how to accept or receive help from others. And here's the problem is no matter how dysfunctional or broken your home may have been growing up, a child never thinks or rarely thinks, why are my parents so messed up? Or why is my home so messed up? Kids tend to internalize it and say, what's wrong with me? Why am I messed up? And that shadow will follow you deep into adulthood as we perpetuate that brokenness into the next generation. Peter Scazzaro says this, When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether as a child, teenager, or adult, we are in the dramatic language of the Bible, born again, John 3.3. The Apostle Paul describes it this way, the old is gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. These two verses and their meanings, however, are sometimes misunderstood. Yes, it is true that when we come to Christ, our sins are wiped away and we are given a new name a new identity, a new future, a new life. It is truly a miracle. That is the great news of the gospel. But we need to understand this does not mean that what our past lives were won't continue to influence us in different ways. The work of growing in Christ, what theologians call sanctification, does not mean we don't go back to the past as we press ahead to what God has for us. It actually demands we go back in order to break free from unhealthy and destructive patterns that prevent us from loving ourselves and others as God designed. As Schizero points out, once we are saved, it doesn't mean all of that brokenness and the wounds of our past are instantly wiped away they still tend to cast a shadow, even that we may be saved. And so what God invites us to is to go back to that past with his help and receive healing from that past so that we can move into our future in a healthy way. In fact, I would argue that knowing that we are accepted and loved by God unconditionally because of what Christ did on the cross gives us the courage to face that brokenness of our past that the world cannot do. In this Bible passage, look at how James and John and their mother's behavior disrupts the community of the 12 disciples. In verse 24 of Matthew 20, it says this, When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. In other words, by what they did to, to ask for those seats of honor, it created this ripple effect through the entire community of the disciples. And it had the potential to actually tear apart that community, tear apart those relationships. And I'm going to say, 
That's the picture of the church today, isn't it? That's what you and I experience as this, is we are saved by the grace of God, but the truth is we're all broken people. We are all sinners. We are broken sinners, and we have come together to form a community. And listen, it is so easy to criticize the church. There is no shortage of ammunition if you want to start to take shots at ICC or maybe even an individual church member that you feel so profoundly disappointed by. And the question is, what do we do with all of this? Because once you start slinging mud, there's no end to that game, is there? But I want you to look at how Jesus handled the situation. If you go to that slide of verse 25 to 28, I'm not going to read it again. But I want you to observe the gentleness with which Jesus handles James and John. He could have been so much harsher to them, couldn't he? But he speaks with this merciful, empathetic, understanding tone. And he does so in the presence of all the other disciples, using this as a teachable moment, not just singling out James and John, but he says this, I have something to say to you to all of you in this room because as much as right now you are judging James and John for what he, they and their mother did, the truth is that hunger for power is in every one of you. And Jesus is using this as an opportunity in a loving way to teach his disciples about the value of his kingdom. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50 says this. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. He replied to him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And throughout the New Testament, this imagery of the family is used over and over again to describe the church. And in essence, what God seems to be saying to us is whatever your family of origin may have looked like or been like, in the church, God is giving us a new family to heal us of our past brokenness. And that's what the church needs to be. As each of us come with our unique form of brokenness from whatever family we have come from, rather than us attacking one another and tearing each other down, what God calls us to do is to becoming a loving, merciful community in which we reach out to one another and look together to God and find healing together in that brokenness. Again, Schizero says this, Our fear of bringing secrets and sins into the light, however, drives many people to prefer the illusion that if they don't think about it, it somehow goes away. It doesn't. Unhealed wounds open us up to habitual sin against God and others. 
The gravitational pull back to the sinful, destructive patterns of our family of origin and culture is enormous. A few of us live as if we were simply paying for the mistakes of our past. For this reason, God has called us to make this journey with companions in the faith. Going back in order to go forward is something we must do in the context of community. With mature friends, a mentor, spiritual director, counselor, or therapist. We need trusted people in our lives of whom we can ask, how do you experience me? Tell me the feelings and thoughts you have when you are with me. Please be honest with me. Prayerfully listening to their answers will go a long way toward healing and getting a perspective on areas of our lives that need to be addressed. Needless to say, this takes a lot of courage. I think what Schizero is saying is is this, that God has designed things in such a way that none of us can reach full spiritual maturity on our own. It just can't happen. We need community to reach maturity. We are all too blind in our self-image and how we see ourselves to truly see ourselves as we really are. We need others to speak into our life who love us and care about us. And I think Schizero is hitting the nail right on the head. I think one of the most important and courageous questions that we could ever ask the people who love us in our life is this. How do you experience me? How do you experience me? That's a terrifying question, isn't it? Because you don't know what they're going to say. Maybe the image that you have of yourself is very different than how others experience you. But I would challenge you that asking this of somebody who's not just going to say, oh, I was waiting for this all my life. I'm so glad you asked. And they're just there to rip a new hole in you. I'm saying asking this of someone who actually is invested in you and loves you, but is also courageous enough not to go, oh, you're okay. You know, we're all broken. <laughs> and you're, you're broken, I'm broken. Let's just have dinner, you know. <laughs> um, but someone who in a genuinely loving and mature way could say, this is how I experience you. And maybe those would be some of the first steps you take of self-awareness where God will, through the loving gift of community, shine a light into your heart. And through faith and the unconditional love of God that comes through Christ Jesus, you will have the courage to face that brokenness and seek the healing that God can bring in your life. Let's pray. We just invite you to do some moment of reflection right now as you think about um, your journey 
uh, from childhood into adulthood. And as you think about your family of origin and how you grew up, um, I always find it interesting during these uh, holidays like Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's, Thanksgiving, I think there's this enormous pressure to try to make it a happy moment. And I hope it is a happy day for us. But I think there also needs to be honesty to say we live in a broken world where often these holidays, if anything, seem to put a spotlight on pain and the struggles to want so much and yet struggle to, to really uh, experience it. And maybe for some of us in this room, um, there has been actually quite a journey of God revealing these things to you. And you've experienced some healing as you've brought it before the Lord. But I also know that there are many of you that find it much easier not to even look there and open those places in your heart because it's just too painful. It's just too hard. But that is God's grace to us, is that He won't leave us alone the way we are. He is unrelentingly pursuing us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so I want to return to those two questions I asked you. How might the way that you are trying to love the people in your life maybe actually not in alignment with God's agenda for their life. And I think to understand why we do that to the people we love, we have to ask ourselves, how was I formed by a broken love? And how does the gospel speak into that brokenness to heal me? Listen, none of us are good enough to do this as a solo project. It'd be great if we could, but none of us are that strong. None of us are that wise. But the truth is it is terrifying to invite others into our brokenness, isn't it? It's terrifying to ask somebody, can you just be honest with me and tell me how you experience me? And I, I don't know, maybe all of us are not at that place in our journey where we could really do that. But maybe you can begin to pray that prayer even today and say, God, I just want the full work of transformation that you intend for me to be experienced in my life. Do your cleansing work in me and make me whole. God, I still see pockets of that brokenness that rear its ugly head when I just blow up on my kids in anger or when I feel the shriveling of my soul when I look in the mirror and just despise what I see. And it shows me, God, that there is still healing work to be done in me. And so I want to open myself up to you, God, to let that work continue in me. We just pray that for a few moments, and then our worship team is going to lead us in a time of response as we come before God uh, by faith to seek his help in all this. Let's pray.